I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We want and crave that that doubt. We, like I, I want it. <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't want there to be a climate crisis that's definitely going to destroy ecosystems and kill millions of people if we don't do anything about it. I I want them to be right, but unfortunately, I'm a journalist and they're not. Hi, I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild, a podcast about living a more beautiful and fired-up life. Here we will continue my 10-year nomadic journey living out of one bag in search of more connection, more awakeness, less consuming, less loneliness, and less bloody scrolling. I'll be inviting you to join me in finding better ways to radically love and save our one wild and precious life on this planet. Today's guest has been referred to as America's foremost climate journalist. I remember first coming across Emily Atkin on Twitter after she published a fossil fuel ad story targeting Twitter, which the then presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren tweeted out on Twitter, tagging the CEO, Jack Dorsey. A week later, Twitter changed its policy on fossil fuel advertising, which at the time struck me as very, very cool. Emily has written on the climate beat for the New Republic, Think Progress, Newsweek, Slate, Mother Jones and The Daily Beast, and is currently a columnist at MSNBC. She also has a Substack newsletter called Heated, dot, 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 a newsletter for people who are pissed off about the climate crisis, which has been awarded the best environmental journalism of 2020. And I'll say it here, it's seriously good. But Emily and I met over email when she contacted me to run a piece on her Heated Substack that I'd written about our PM's failure on climate in the wake of the Australian bushfires. You might recall the running off to Hawaii, the fact he'd been warned about the impending threat repeatedly but ignored the advice, how those of us who voiced concerns were called lunatics and how on the day of the worst smoke pollution in Sydney ever, which was the equivalent of smoking apparently 32 cigarettes a day, he denied funding to firefighters. Anyway, Emily ran with the header, Think American Climate Politics is Bad?, Wait till you hear about Australia. Me, I ran with the headline, Why Australians Must Rage at Prime Minister ScoMo. So it leads me to a wild idea I want to speak to Emily about today. It's one she shares compellingly. 
that we are helpless somehow in the face of something so big as the climate crisis and that there's no one that we can blame and hold to account. There's no one to rage at. The comparison's often been made, and I have to say I've made this comparison myself. We often say, well, unlike World War II where there was a discernible enemy out there, the Nazis, you know, we could rail against this this enemy. With the climate crisis, there's apparently no such enemy. Well, of course, Emily argues otherwise, and she says the enemy is the fossil fuel industry. In prepping for this interview with her, I've realised I kind of agree and that her approach more crucially, provides a very helpful psychological path forward. Listen in and see where you land at at the end. I should say we recorded this chat via video call and so I have to apologise. The quality is not great, but the ideas certainly are. Okay, so let's get to the chat. So welcome to Wild, Emily Atkin. Thank you for having me. Emily, you're a climate journalist, one of the best in the world, and you dig deep into an issue and then you bring it out to us all and you explain why we should be enraged about it. (laughs) What are you looking into at the moment? First of all, thank you. Second of all, one of the things that I focus on the most, I would say, with climate change is explaining to people how they're being lied to or how they're being misled, the various forms of propaganda that they're exposed to by people who profit from pollution, climate pollution. So in other words, greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, methane. Um, And everyone knows about climate denial, which is sort of like, you know, I deny that climate change is happening or that it's bad. Um, But there are way more sophisticated forms of deception that happen uh, from the fossil fuel industry, especially because it's become less acceptable to lie outright about climate change. (laughs) Generally across the human population, yes. (laughs) Right. Generally, it's it's becoming less acceptable to simply lie outright, to lie by telling lies. So one of the things I'm exploring right now is a type of deception called paltering. Mm. Um, And paltering is is a sort of sneakier way to lie. It's, It's one of three sort of scientifically defined forms of deception. Um, So the ones that are most commonly known are lying by telling a lie, um, also known as lying by commission. Um, That's when you say, I did my homework and you did not actually do your homework, right? You you didn't do it. You just said you did. Everyone knows what that kind of lie is. It's a lie by commission. Uh, Everyone is also tends to be familiar familiar with lying by omission, um, that is when you just fail to say something in the hopes that, you know, no, nobody will seek to correct you or clarify. So when you walk into a room with your parents and you say, I'm all set for school tomorrow and you didn't do your homework, but, you know, you didn't say you didn't do it. You just said you're all set. So uh, you lied by omission. So those are the more commonly known ones. Paltering was defined by... Uh, Harvard University researchers in 2016, and it's called lying by telling the truth. So that's when you walk in and you say, I finished my math homework, but all you really did was you filled in, you know, the same answer for every single box. You didn't actually do any of the work. You're going to fail the assignment. It's a bad job, but you did technically complete the homework, right? So you're not lying. Yeah. It's completely distracting, You told the truth. It's just, it's a truth designed to mislead the person you're telling it to. You just, you want, you want your parents to get off your back. 
So that's what the fossil fuel industry does uh, constantly with climate change now. Um, and so, you know, you know, they say we're investments in clean energy technology or we're investing in this climate solution. Technically, it's true. But it's like the math homework example. They're doing a very bad job. They're not investing a lot compared to the amount of pollution that they're putting into the atmosphere. They're still actively lobbying against any effective climate change regulation, and they're still profiting immensely off of the expansion of fossil fuels, which is the main driver of global warming uh, and climate change. So uh, it's it's designed to mislead, and, and right now I'm sort of working on pieces that help explain and demystify this type of deception so that they can better understand what's going on. The very nature of what poultrying is, and I presume that, it, does it come from the word poultry? Like it's the poultry version of the truth? Perhaps. I actually, that's a good question. That's something that I should look into, but I, I don't know. You know, it, it was, <laughs> it, it, I think it comes from a philosophical term of poultering. Um, and these researchers from Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania adapted it to define this third specific type of deception. But it is fairly new on the scene of deception research, right? Only about five years old. Okay. So, I mean, it's a very slippery form of communication and deception because it's really hard to pin them down because every time you point to something, they'll say, but no, but we've done this and here's our big PowerPoint presentation to prove it. How as a journalist, and I think a lot of people who will be listening to this podcast are probably climate communicators or even just people who care about the climate and they're trying to explain this to their recalcitrant uncle who comes out with poultry poultry lies. Um, how do you try to make the point in a way that's convincing? Because it's designed to be slippery. It's designed to deceive and get us discombobulated, right? Sure, and it, and it becomes more and more difficult to explain when you're talking about something as complicated as climate, as climate change. Um, unfortunately, climate change tends to be a very complicated problem. It's not just fossil fuels causing the climate, climate crisis, although it is majority fossil fuels. There are other things, too. There are, you know, deforestation is a huge issue. Uh, animal agriculture is a huge issue. There are many different contributors. So there's always a way to, it's much easier to try to make it really simple uh, if you're trying to mislead than it is to explain it fully. It, it, it can take five seconds to lie, but to tell the full truth about climate change, you need 20 minutes at least, you know, so it, it is difficult. I describe it as a bit like trying to argue with Jordan Peterson. <laughs> you know, he's got this incredible capacity to say, well, we're going to argue over there. And when you go and join him in that particular theoretical framework, he then moves it over there. And of course, there's all different angles to a complex topic. And he's developed that art form super well. He should get picked up by the fossil fuel industry as a, as a lobbyist or a communication spokesperson, I think. But how do you how do you do it? Like when you go to write one of your newsletters and you're trying to communicate this in a way which will have real impact perhaps with people who are overwhelmed, you know, how do you how do you break it down? What techniques do you use? Well, I would say the first thing that I do is I don't talk to people who I know already are not going to hear me no matter what I say. There is a segment of the population that no matter how convincing or what technique I use, will not listen to me when I tell them climate change is dangerous, 
poses catastrophic risks to humanity and is caused primarily by fossil fuels. There's just a segment of the population, at least, you know, here in the United States, that won't hear that no matter what. Um, and those people I'm not interested in because I don't need to be interested in those people. The Yale Center for Climate Communications research has sort of shown that far more people, the majority of people, care about climate change or are open to caring about climate change. The deniers and the and the really and the really doubtful people make up they, they might be the loudest, but they make up an insignificant portion of the population. So who I the first thing I try to do when I'm talking to people is I talk to people who have a chance of hearing me, who are coming from a place where they potentially care about this, but they're perhaps overwhelmed. They're perhaps, they perhaps haven't been explained in a way that makes sense to them. I think that's number one, the most important thing to start with. And number two, I, I really just try to demystify the cause and effect of climate change as much as possible. I think that we're constantly fed this narrative of human-caused climate change, and that makes it really vague and difficult to understand. I try to be very clear that climate change is caused the, ma the majority by fossil fuels, by deforestation, and by animal agriculture. These are the three things, and we need to replace, we, we need to cut down massively on all three of those things to solve it. And then, you know, questions go from there, you know? Um, and then I just try to let people know that the, very much the basics that the fossil fuel industry and people in power have been aware for a very long time about how bad climate change was going to get and refused to do anything because they were more interested in preserving the status quo than tackling this problem. And that opens up a lot of doors and you sort of see where you can go from there. Okay. Yeah, there's a few things I just want to say there. I mean, Australia has done a similar study to the Yale study. Uh, I think it's the Six Americas, I think it's called. In Australia, we've done a similar one. Monash University has found exactly the same parallels, that it's a very small percentage of the population who don't want to hear climate facts and figures or the climate truth, the denialists. And it's a really interesting thing is, is we're best off not wasting our energy on that small segment of the community, but rather enticing in, and getting enthusiasm from people who are, who are vested and interested but overwhelmed. Um, I think that's a really interesting thing to, to pull up. But to your second and third point, and that is that, you know what, there's somebody to blame here. And I think that's a really big point that I've learned from your work, Emily, is that I think a lot of people who are trying to absorb all of this information, there is this sense of guilt and fear. They're the predominant emotions that we feel when we encounter all of this information. And what you're saying is that is the fossil fuel industry's aim. And in fact, there is an enemy, you know, there is an enemy out there that we can point a finger at. And that means that we can then use the emotion of anger and rage. Have I got that right? Because I think you talk a lot about that. You know, your newsletter is called Heated for People Pissed Off with the Climate Crisis. And we feel almost like we're not allowed to be pissed off. You know, it's a really funny thing, isn't it? We feel that we're, we're allowed to feel fear and we're allowed to feel overwhelmed, but to be pissed off and angry, it's like we've got to dial that down. Is that something that you feel is indeed the case? 
it's a hundred percent why I do what I do today. You know, I covered climate change for six and a half years before I started the newsletter and it took me many years, even, even as somebody that was reporting on this day in and day out to realize that climate change was not simply something that was happening to us as a society, as, as humanity, but it was something that was being done to us and that there was a, an incredible dereliction of duty, responsibility to, to especially young people, to nature um, and, and to poor and vulnerable people by people in power. And not just now, but for years being presented with very good, credible evidence of a global crisis and the reason that this crisis would happen. And then the active choice to deny and to delay and to push things down the road, to kick the can down the road. That is the definition of a dereliction of duty, especially for a politician. Um, it is the constant choice of profits over solving this problem. Um, a constant denial of the viability of clean energy, the, the reality that we could have a clean energy economy, that we could address these things, you know? It, there's so much denial. Yeah, well, I would like to actually go through this stage by stage because there's a little bit of a sequence, I think, to how this has come about. And maybe we could start with 30 years ago when the denial and the cover-up of research really sort of started. So some listeners might be aware that 30 years ago, we knew how bad the climate crisis would get. We, we were told everything that we know today. Yet this research was buried. Can you explain what happened with that? 30 years ago, climate research was covered up. Exactly. So a lot, oh, the way that I explain this a lot is that I'm 32 years old, right? I was born in 1989. And that same year, while I was growing in my mom's belly, you know, mm. uh, there was a lot of research being put out into the world, Um in the U.S., our Environmental Protection Agency released this sweeping 400-page report about the potential effects of climate change. Um, it said it said things like, oh, sea level rise could lead to the loss of coastal wetlands. Rapid warming could reduce the population of many plants and animals. It could lead to extinction of species. Um even even that that same year, eighty nine, uh, you know, the president in the United States was George H. W. Bush. One of his uh, assistant secretary of states said, "If the if the climate change within the range of current predictions occurs, the consequences for every nation and every aspect of hum human activity will be profound." And you know, he's a Republican. He's one of our you know now climate denier parties. So. And right then, Congress started in the United States started to get to work on real legislation to come together and to fix this problem, to reduce emissions from the fossil fuel industry because everyone knew. And then something happened, mm. you know? And what was that, Emily? <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of the science that these reports were based on, that these statements were being made, actually came from fossil fuel companies um, because, look, fossil fuel companies are are huge profit centers. They 
need to make sure that they can maintain that profit. So they employ scientists to make sure they're taking into consideration any risks their product or liabilities they could be exposed to. And their own scientists, years before 1989, were on the cutting edge of greenhouse gas research. And they were the ones who said, you know, it really seems like our products could be causing a catastrophic global warming scenario. And oops, <laughs> it's not like Exxon and Chevron uh, and the companies back then were promoting that research. In fact, they were right after, right as Congress started to consider legislation to re- to reduce greenhouse gases from their industry. That's when they banded together and started trying to cast doubt on that science because they didn't want to be subject to regulation to clean up their carbon pollution because that would be expensive, right? Um, so in, a, in I'm trying to remember the year, yeah, I think it's 80, it, it's still 89, ExxonMobil and a bunch of other oil and car companies created this group called the Global Climate Coalition. And it was designed to prevent regulations on greenhouse gases. Um, and this group basically argued that there was uncertainty in the science, that it wasn't, they they led this aggressive lobbying campaign and advertising campaign to sow doubt about the integrity of the science and on climate science in general. Uh, they ran ads in newspapers and on television, and they created basically a model that our politicians here in the United States and in Australia and in many other countries continue to use today to cast doubt on the severity of the problem that we know very clearly and confidently that we're facing. Yeah, well, that, I mean, the denialism is one thing, you know, that's a truth or a, or a falsehood that is a little easier to, to argue with. But when we're talking about doubt, you know, it's so powerful. And here in Australia, it was very powerful. Really up until only a couple of years ago, our Prime Minister was saying publicly on a regular basis, well, the climate science is not completely certified. It's not completely in, you know. And of course, the doubt is is really, really powerful because it confuses people and overwhelms them further. There's the denialism, there's the doubt and confusion what other techniques have the fossil fuel been using to essentially dupe us, to, to polter, essentially? Well, I think that it's important to see how the evolution of denial and doubt has has taken place. Um, it used to be, this isn't a problem, it's a hoax, completely ridiculous. Then it became, it's really... Uh, you know, there's some doubt about how bad it's going to be, or maybe it's maybe it could even be good. And then it became, well, it, it is real, but maybe it's not going to be that bad. And now it's it is real, but it's not going to be catastrophic. And we're already doing all the things that we can do to fix it. The common thread through all of this is delay regulation, delay policy that might be expensive for our industry. The goal of denial was never to get people to deny climate change. The goal of denial is to delay 
climate policy for as long as possible. So just moving the goalposts a bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, will still give people enough reason to doubt that they really should support transformative policies just a little bit longer. You know, um, the, the goal is not to get people to deny. It is to delay because people are not going to support the transformative policies needed to address climate change if they don't aren't 100% sure that this is a catastrophic problem caused by fossil fuels and deforestation. Um, they have to inject some level of something for you to be unsure about. And it's in our nature as humans to not want that certainty that a really bad thing is going to happen to us. We want and crave that, that doubt. We, like, I, I want it. <laughs> you know, I don't, yeah. I don't want there to be a climate crisis that's definitely going to destroy ecosystems and kill millions of people if we don't do anything about it. I, I want them to be right. But unfortunately, I'm a journalist and they're not. <laughs> Well, in Australia, we've got the most perfect example of all of this. And while I explain to you, I mean, I think you'd probably aware of it because I know you've been following what's been happening in Australia because we're kind of the worst, right? We are literally <laughs> the worst. At COP26, we were awarded the Colossal Fossil Award for I think it was five days in a row of being literally the worst at COP26. I think Nobody came even close to that record. We won that, we won that award by a long shot. And it was for essentially having no climate policy. It was for actually having a stand at COP26 that was sponsored by Santos. And they served coffee, right? Everybody went to the Australian pavilion to have coffee that was brought to you by a freaking fossil fuel company. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> anyway, um, the other thing that Australia does that fits to that whole idea of delaying, you know, this this tactic. So you've got You've got denialism, you've got doubt, and then you've got the delay, the three Ds. Here in Australia, we had a COVID recovery commission that was stacked with, you bet, executives from the fossil fuel industry. And what do you know they're finding for the big fix for Australia coming out of COVID was a gas-led recovery. And so gas is another way of delaying action on the real problem. There's so much to unpack there, but in Australia, it's a very distinct tactic, is delaying. And the fact that we very reluctantly at the last minute, literally hours before our Prime Minister decided he would go to COP26, he agreed to a 2050 commitment, but was one of the few countries that arrived with no 2030 commitment. It's like, we'll just keep kicking that can down the road, 2050, we'll deal with it then which of course misses the point. And the and the reason that you have no 2030 commitment by the way and you have a 2050 commitment is that fossil fuel companies are hoping that by 2050 they will have developed some miracle technology that will help them ca capture carbon that they emit out of the atmosphere and first of all, either bury it underground or put it in pipelines that can continually run just full of carbon dioxide in the ground. So they will never have to stop uh, extracting, producing, burning fossil fuels. Uh, they will simply capture the carbon they emit out of the atmosphere and store it underground in, in what are essentially oil pipelines, but full of carbon that can explode just like oil pipelines and have before. 
This is essentially like investing in magic. Um, this technology does exist, but to deploy it on a scale that could actually that would actually have a difference and make a difference in zeroing out emissions, um, you would still have to. It, it's it's there is no peer reviewed model that could say that could work. Number one, uh, number two. We do need that technology, but it also needs to be paired with huge reductions in fossil fuel production and and have that replaced with clean energy. And the fossil fuel companies do not, that, that is not part of their plan. Their plan, as you said, is to promote gas as if gas is clean and gas is cleaner than coal, but gas, it's very simple. It's still a fossil fuel. Gas is a fossil fuel. <laughs> exactly. And it releases methane in the production and, and the whole the whole kind of horrible clusterfuck of issues that go around it. I'll, I'll just actually step in there and just break it down a little bit. For anyone listening, carbon um, sinking or carbon offsetting is the process whereby rather than pr- stopping the production of carbon, um, there's this sort of yeah, as you say, this magical unicorn solution that people think might work where you can get the emissions, so you burn off the carbon and you produce carbon dioxide, and then you kind of claim that you can then kind of sink it all back into the earth and hide it and bury it. So it's called carbon burying, carbon sinking, carbon offsetting. Um, We know all this terminology because this is what companies are now coming out with. When a company says that they're going carbon neutral by whatever year, it essentially means, well, they could actually be going and reducing their emissions, but they may also not be reducing their emissions. They're simply going and paying for somebody to sink it into the ground, bury it, and hope that somehow it'll work. Now, a lot of them are using trees. I mean, we can use the example of Shell, who, by the way, have just bought PowerShop, Australia's previously only totally renewable emissions energy provider. But Shell, for instance, claims that they are going carbon neutral. And to actually offset all the carbon emissions that they produce, just one company amongst many, um, they would have to actually use up 40% of all arable land on the planet, right, to plant the trees required to sink the carbon into the soil. I mean, that's insanity, isn't it? I mean, there's, we would have to stop eating to allow these companies, that, all these companies that are claiming that they're going to go carbon neutral, to allow them to use enough forest to replant trees that are going to sink all of this carbon. It's insanity. And what allows them to confuse people about this, though, is that we do need carbon sink. Yes. Right? That is part of solving climate change. We need better carbon capture technology. We're going to have to remove some of this carbon from the atmosphere, and that involves planting trees. That involves investing in carbon capture technology. But it means jack shit. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. (laughs) Of course you can. It means jack shit if you're not also significantly reducing actual carbon emissions from fossil fuels. You have to keep in mind all the time when you see this messaging from fossil fuel companies that they are the biggest climate polluters in the world and they profit from it. They essentially are the biggest causers of global warming and they make money for it. 
they, there's no tax on them for having caused climate change, right? The, it, the price of the product that they sell does not reflect the damage that their product causes. I think what you're saying is that carbon capture should really be used as a remedy of last resort. So it's for when we can't reduce our fossil fuel use and we have to use it, say, for flying or for steel production. We still need to do carbon capture for those things. So great, it is a solution, but it should be used as a remedy of last resort. It's a little bit like the parallel with recycling, right? And again, the fossil fuel industry is responsible for telling us that we just need to recycle, right? You can use plastic, but you just need to recycle it. Everything will be fine. Recycling should be an option of last resort when you've actually had to use a piece of plastic and it's been unavoidable in in, in every direction. Instead, it's been put forward as the solution you know, rather than the small little band-aid to fix the bits that we can't actually fix with other means. So I think it's called fossil fuel solutionism. And, you know, the carbon capture is is certainly one of those. And the other one that I'm seeing that's coming up as well is that the fossil fuel industry is diverting their attention to plastic. They're actually setting up like countless plastic production plants because they've realised they're going to have to do something as people switch to renewables And so there's going to be a massive campaign to get us all using more plastic. I've also read that they've gone to Africa and are encouraging countries that had otherwise banned plastic bags like Rwanda to reverse that policy to create a market for their new fossil fuel product more plastic. This happened this happened in the United States when the pandemic started. Um, As soon as the pandemic started, the fossil fuel industry started a state-by-state lobbying campaign to reverse single-use plastic bag bans. Wow. Because they said that we were we were spreading COVID through the use of reusable bags, which was not scientifically proven at all at that point and turned out to not be the case. There has never been one instance of scientifically determined somebody got COVID from touching a reusable bag. But through this fear-mongering, the fossil fuel industry got several plastic bag bans reversed, uh, single-use plastic bag bans reversed uh, across the United States. They used the pandemic to their advantage to continue to be able to profit from two crises at once. Um, it's, it's actually quite incredible. Wow. What's an example of that? So if people are listening, they might be going, okay, the fossil fuel industry is doing this. How did they lobby state governments or councils to... Um, reverse bans or did they place advertisements to create fear around plastic or around other forms of bags? Was was that, how so, did it happen? Yeah, it's complicated. So it's not like Exxon is, is, at the, is at the town meeting saying we should reverse this ban. It's not like their representatives are the ones lobbying. What they do is they fund front groups, groups that are designed to look like citizens activism campaigns but they are they are employees uh, that are paid by generally a trade association for the oil and gas industry, where all the oil and gas companies pay the dues into for it to exist. So there's usually like three levels of separation, and this is why this is why I hope you're. If there's one thing I can tell your listeners, it's. Um, support journalists because they're the ones that that look into this kind of stuff is that the connection is that the fossil fuel company pays dues to create the trade association like you know the uh American Petroleum Institute in the United States and then the American Petroleum Institute 
pays to create citizens for uh, safe, reusable bags, uh, for, for safe plastic bags or citizens for safe grocery stores. And then they go and lobby their state official, right? And then the funding tracing is, it's kind of hard to do, but once you've uncovered that, it's almost too late, right? Um, yeah. The, the thing has already happened. Because the consumers, the consumers bought that information, we've absorbed it. And we also saw it with single-use cutlery and takeaway coffee cups as well around the world. All of a sudden, people got the message that, you know, crockery cups and, and keep cups that you bring to the cafe yourself from home was was spreading COVID and there's not a scrap of evidence. And yet everyone believed that these messages are fueled by fear and spread super fast. And as you say, by the time a journalist like yourself uncovers it, A, it's super boring to explain and technical and people tune out pretty early on. And two, did I say A or B? B and two. You said A and two. And B, um, you know, as you say, the message is the horse is bolted by the time you can actually get to it and dig out all the documentation and the train of the the trail of evil. And we're living through a pandemic. So it's like, you know, we're living through a pandemic. So how do you have time to even care about that? You're afraid and you can't see your friends and you're going insane. So it's like, what are you supposed to do? Yeah. Just get scared and listen and, and, and observe messages that come and feed your fear, basically. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One of my other favourite um, techniques from the fossil fuel company, and I, and I think this is kind of lands as a bit of a shock to people, we have this phrase, your carbon footprint, counting your carbon footprint. And it's seen as something that we're all meant to be doing, like counting calories or, or whatever. It's this idea of self-monitoring, the individual taking responsibility for their carbon footprint. And again, this comes from the fossil fuel industry. They invented this idea Again, it's a distraction. Again, it shifts blame onto us and away from them. And it suggests that we can keep using fossil fuels. We've just got to minimise it ourselves and then offset it ourselves, you know. Can you explain how that came about? Yeah, it was BP, actually. BP created the concept of a carbon footprint. When was it? Oh, I don't know, a few decades ago, maybe like 80s. 80s, 90s, it's sort of hard to keep track of every single year, but it was definitely when I was a wee, a wee lad, right? Like I was a little, a little girl um, before, 
before I would grow up and be an adult living through a climate crisis, these decisions had already been made, right? That's sort of the point of it. Um, and the idea is the same as the, you know, the plastic industry is the industry that created uh, re recycling, reduce, reuse, recycle campaigns throughout the United States because they saw that people were getting a bit concerned about plastic pollution and they didn't want to be targeted with regulations that might hit them at the source and force them to create less plastic. So they created a public relations campaign to get everybody to do their part individually and do more recycling. And so that when we're presented with the problem on a daily basis, we think to ourselves, oh, I need to recycle this container more. And that's my responsibility versus this company needs to make containers don't need to be recycled or they need to make compostable containers or they need to make containers that I can take and reuse so that I don't have to do this. I don't have to wash out a thing every day. We just, you know, automatically internalize. Oh, it's my fault. I need, I don't recycle enough. Oh my God. You know, like the ocean plastic crisis is getting so bad. It's my fault. I haven't recycled enough. That's a messaging that was, that was put into our brains by the plastics industry, and that's exactly what the carbon footprint calculator is, right? It was, uh, it's the exact same concept, except for climate change and not ocean plastics. Yeah. I mean, it's just yet another distraction technique that, is, that makes us feel that the onus is on us. And it's worked. I look around at my friends and people in my orbit and very much take on responsibility for the climate crisis. And absolutely, we've all got a part to play in it. But I think the big point that you have managed to teach me and others around the world is that actually a far more useful emotion to have rather than fear and guilt is anger. Despite the best efforts of the fossil fuel industry to convince us otherwise, there is in fact an enemy here. There is a target to be angry at. And as you say, it's the, it's the fossil fuel industry, right? They did it to us. The climate crisis isn't happening to us like some horrible misfortune. It's something that they did to us. Now, we were complicit because we went along with it. But I guess what you're trying to do is highlight what has been happening and get people angry about it now so that we can stop it. The anger thing is a really interesting one, isn't it? I really want to talk about that because we are scared of being angry and I'm just, I'm wondering why that is, but I also want to pick up on something before we sort of work out why anger is a problem in this equation. And I want to sort of read out a quote that I think you've got on your heated newsletter sort of website, a landing page, and it's talking about the idea that anger is productive. And I think you quote Jack Newfield, who's an investigative journalist in New York, and there's a quote that he says, I think it's from his biography, compassion without anger can become nearly sentiment or pity. Knowledge without anger can stagnate into mere cynicism and apathy. Anger improves lucidity, persistence, audacity, and memory. Is that true for you? That's why that quote is on my landing page. Um, Jack Newfield was my, my late mentor, Wayne Barrett, um, who was an investigative journalist in New York, Jack Newfield was his mentor. And um, Wayne and Jack were journalists who were very, 
angry on behalf of vulnerable people. Um, everything they did was, was because they were angry that people who were powerless were being taken advantage of. And they used that anger to motivate their journalism and uncover, um, uncover facts. And I love, I love that quote from Jack Newfield um, about compassion without anger can stagnate, you know, into, think about it, really think about it. Think about like being compassionate for something, for somebody, you see their plight and you're like, oh, I really want to help that. But you don't know how, you're not angry on behalf of them. So you just kind of, you're, eh. You don't do anything, you know, uh, knowledge without anger. You can know that someone's being taken advantage of, but unless you are angry about it, what's going to drive you to, to do anything about it? I find that, you know, grief and, um, and sadness and anxiety, they're all, they're all paralyzing emotions. They cause me to sit in my room and look at a wall and they paralyze me. Whereas anger is, a catalyzing force. It gets me out of my, you know, there's, I've never been more driven to work out in my life than when some dude, you know, pissed me off and broke up with me in a stupid <laughs> way. Right. You know, I get to the gym and I get super ripped, you know, it's motivating. Right. Um, it's also dangerous. It's, yeah. it's, it can be a dangerous emotion. And I think that's why people are afraid of it because flip it around, right. Anger without compassion is, is completely damaging. If of you're course. just angry and it's not on behalf of something you love and something you believe in, you know, you can, you can really be a destructive force and anger without knowledge. That's the, um, <laughs> yeah. that's, we see, we see a lot of that. We see a lot of, you know, angry, stupid, right? <laughs> so, uh, angry, stupid. It's dominating the planet at the moment. Unfortunately, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So that's very scary. That's, but anger with compassion and with knowledge is beautiful and necessary. Uh, once you understand what's happening with climate change and what, how, how we've been willfully, how we've been willfully manipulated to believe it's our fault completely. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that I don't hold any fault, right? It's, but it's proportionate. And I've been made to believe that it's my fault my whole life. If you're not angry, I think that I think that some things deserve anger. Mm. I think that it's a healthy emotion. Um, I, I, if I have can give you one anecdote, like relationship wise, because I just find relationships are a good uh, metaphor for this. Like maybe about a year ago, I was dating somebody, and um, I got angry about something that had happened. And I won't say I won't get into it, but it was it was something that was worth being angry about, and you know, when I was expressing myself about it, I got a little angry. Um, I wouldn't say that I was in a rage. I wasn't throwing anything, but I was, I was how I can get sometimes, which is a little like, Hey, what, what, what do you mean about this? And he totally shut down. Um, he said that he really didn't like it. He didn't believe that anger was a good thing that when I reacted in an angry way, like he can't hear me at all. We had this conversation where I was like, look, Anger is not bad. Like when I'm when I'm angry, it's because something bad happened to me. And like, I understand if, if you react badly to anger because in your past, people have gotten angry at you and it's been really hurtful and really bad and they've done it in a bad way. But this is a healthy emotion and it can be expressed in a healthy way. Absolutely. And it does nobody any good to, to suppress entirely an emotion. 
and so we, we, we came to an agreement, but like, I understand that anger is traumatic and toxic for people, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah. And it's also appropriate for certain times in history. George Monbiot from The Guardian, a climate you know reporter over there, I remember he said, to be at peace in a troubled world is not a reasonable aim. Yeah. So to be all chill right now is just not appropriate. It doesn't match the circumstances. I also listened to you interview Mary Hegler. She's a writer. She tells stories around climate and um, she's very much worth following. But some time back, I think it was at the beginning of the sort of the, the coronavirus storyline, you know, we were talking about anger and she was talking about the fact that she chooses anger because the grief process when we're talking about the climate crisis is such that we can never go through the various stages. And she said with the climate crisis, we can never get to acceptance, acceptance of our extinction, of how bad this potentially can be, because essentially if we accept it, then that's that's our death knell, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so what we do in the climate crisis, and this is what I think a lot of people do feel when they've been working in this area, is you bounce between the emotions backwards and forwards because we can't land at acceptance. And I think what she said is that she chooses to land at anger because it actually proves to be the most productive, useful emotion, you know, in those stages. And I found that really helpful, you know, to think about that, well, if you're going to choose one emotion, you might as well choose the most productive and the most appropriate for the time. As you're saying this, I am typing into my Google search bar, anger, climate change study, because uh, I think it was just a couple months ago, new research came out peer-reviewed research that spoke exactly to what you're talking about, what what Mary said, that actually validated that sentiment. And it no longer is just anecdotal. Um, Here, I found it. It it is research that shows that anger is a motivating emotion, one that often triggers action. Um, And researchers found in this analysis that was published a couple months ago, that uh, that those who witnessed displays of public anger became more likely to speak out against the injustice, right? Um, and they found that anger has that has benefits for combating climate change. These researchers found that people who learned that a growing number of folks are angry about climate change are more inclined to believe that the public is likely to take action to address climate change. And if you believe something is possible, then it is more likely to actually be possible. So there's there's way more to the study, but it the gist of it is this is research based that anger is a helpful emotion in addressing climate change. And I think that is also why you'll find increasingly you're going to see more anger campaigns driven yeah. by the fossil fuel industry. They're going to get people really riled up that the climate activists are trying to take away your livelihood, your well-being, your jobs, your um, your stability, um, and they're good. And they also do this thing. I see it all over the, the place in the United States now, mm. where they say that um, tackling climate change, aka reducing fossil fuel use, hurts vulnerable people, people of color poor people the most because they're the ones that most need energy security. And what you'll find is that they never talk about what climate change will do to those people and what climate change is already doing to those people because they're still denying climate change. 
Um, and I think it's really important just like going back to what we talked about in the beginning about how do you talk to people who are kind of on the fence? This is all real. Like the concerns about energy security and about getting getting necessary energy to low income people, people of color, that's all real, you know? These are all real concerns. Nobody who is trying to solve climate change is saying that we should all be poor and and we should live in the dark. That is what the other side is going to make it out to be and they're going to they're going to intentionally build up anger around that yeah. to crush the climate change movement. Yeah, okay. So if we track it, you've got denialism, you've got doubt, you've got delay. Then there's sort of the carbon footprint counting thing in there, you know, throw it back on the consumer. <laughs> yeah. You've got fossil fuel solutionism, um, you've got poltering, and now you've got throwing anger back at us as another technique. And I think what we've also got to look forward to from the fossil fuel industry, if I have this right, is doomism. You know what? There's no point fighting this because it's all too late. So let's just kind of burn a bunch of gas. Let's burn a bunch of coal because, hey, it's too late. Do you see that on the horizon? Because I know a few people are saying that that's something we are yet to experience as a as another campaign in this series. I do know that it's never going to get to recognition and admission of their role in causing the problem. Um, real, real um, sitting with and taking responsibility for their actions. Um, because that opens them up to too much financial liability. If this is the thing, if the fossil fuel industry as a whole ever fully took responsibility for what they had done, they would no longer be able to exist. They would open themselves up to so much financial, legal, consumer protection liability lawsuits that they would get sued into the ground. The same way the tobacco industry pretty much did in the United States. But, you know, obviously we see now with smokeless tobacco that you know, they didn't totally get, but, but they were gone mm. for a while, pretty much. Um, and it's why personally, I don't think you'll ever see forced admission, but that's what we really need. Um, just like the same way, if you're in a, why I always go back to relationships, if you're in a relationship with somebody, if your parent, you know, abused you, but they also gave you life and they gave you a house and they fed you and they did all this great stuff for you, just like the fossil fuel industry has done to us, for us. They did. They mm-hmm. did great things for us. Jobs, security. We're talking yep. right now, you know, in part because of fossil fuels. I'm sure fossil fuels are, are powering some of the lights in my apartment right now. Um, they did great things for us, but they're also killing us, right? And if so if your parent is abusive to you, but they've also done great things to you, you're never going to have a healing relationship with them unless they take responsibility and and say, you know, I did this. I want to figure out a way to move forward. We're never going to see that kind of, of reflection and admission from the fossil fuel industry because if they did, you know, they would cease to exist. It's like if your parents admitted they abused you, they would go to jail. So they're not going to do it, uh, you know. Um, yeah. And that's that's hard to grapple with, but also... We have legal processes in this country where you don't need to admit something to be proven guilty. Emily, can I ask you, um, do you find in your experience when you start to tell this story about the fossil fuel industry and you point out that we do have an enemy here, we have a perpetrator, and you invite people to steer their rage to to the enemy, do you find that it helps 
people traverse the, the climate grief that we're feeling? Do you find it that that it creates a storyline that is motivating? And I, I'll refer to a CNN interview that you did um, not so long ago where you said, you know, the fact is the climate crisis is a corruption story. And I think you said, which makes it sexy. It actually, you know, like it actually makes it a compelling thing to get behind. Would you invite listeners here to actually access their rage as a way to better motivate themselves into action? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it is the reason that I'm able to still do this job. If I hadn't figured out that this was a corruption story, um, I don't know that I would have been able to keep, keep covering climate change, honestly. It was too much for me. And also, you know, I come from this investigative journalism background. I want to be covering corruption stories. Um, and so that's why I know it's fucked up to say, but it is, it is a sexy story in that you get to uncover wrongdoing. You have someone to say, no, I'm going to stand up for other people. Climate change is an injustice. And if you, like me, are motivated by righting wrongs, then this can be really empowering and really motivating for you because it gives you something to truly believe in other than, you know, the world is ending and we're all going to die and I think it's my own fault. What does that give you? Um, that doesn't really give you anything. But to truly understand that that there is an injustice happening and, it, and it's not you and it's there are people who are who are standing by and just letting it happen um, because they would rather be comfortable now than than do something brave and do something courageous. That's motivating, but it can be, I will say, it can be also exhausting because when you engage in a fight for justice, you you guarantee yourself a lot of losses. Yeah. Uh, you guarantee yourself because the person in power, you know, this is it's David and Goliath here, right? So person in power is always going to have that advantage. So it's so important to keep yourself surrounded by the reasons you're motivated. And that's the people you love, the thing, other things you love. You can never let this consume you 100%. Um, I've learned that the hard way, right? Um, and it's why you probably know that I've stepped back from my newsletter. It used to be a daily publication. I used to publish it four times a week. Now I publish it once a week, if that, right? Um, <laughs> because I need, especially in the pandemic, if I'm going to keep this for the long haul, if I'm going to truly be sustainable about this, um, the climate crisis needs people for the long haul. So do not burn yourself out, <laughs> right? Yeah. Do things. Live your life for the people you love. Yeah. Um, and that's essentially what being an effective climate change advocate is. It's fighting for the planet you love and the people you love and the things you love. Absolutely. And I, I did follow that with you and saw that you were burning yourself out as I see a lot of climate activists. It actually makes me think of the fact that so many climate activists are women and it's an overwhelming fact that, you know, the frontline grassroots campaigners are overwhelmingly women. And I do wonder whether that's why anger and rage is an emotion that has been so easily sort of taken away from the climate movement is because female rage, female anger is is a difficult thing for the world to deal with, right? And, and you know, of course, we're deemed hysterical and a whole bunch of things. And that's something that I've often thought about. And we need to switch that. <laughs> 
Uh, we need yeah. to switch that. And I, I might even finish off on this note. There's an anecdote that I share in my book, This One Wild and Precious Life. It draws on the myth of um, Kali. Kali is the Hindu goddess of rage, of female rage. Can you believe there is such a thing? Um, but she actually infiltrates the body of amazing, beautiful women down on earth when the gods decide that men have become too selfish, they're destroying the planet, they've got too lazy and they need a shake-up. So Kali comes down and I think it's Shiva, she... she um, uh, she's got to come down and marry him, you know, in the in the in the body of this beautiful woman. And um, she was out in the battlefield and um, being lazy, meditating too much. That was the other thing which I absolutely loved about this anecdote, this myth. And um, they're destroying the earth. They're letting the earth, you know, go to wreck and ruin. So um, she has, I think, multiple arms with um, daggers, and she goes onto the battlefield and just slays all these men. And she's about to slay her husband and um, says, you know. You've mistreated the feminine. You've mistreated Mother Earth. Um, you've been lazy and flaccid. Fire up. And he got the message and he, you know, woke out of his slumber and rallied the troops to save the planet once again. Now, this myth was from thousands of years ago. But what I find wonderful is this acceptance that female rage is required to come down onto the earth when, you know, masculine consumption and, and ruination is, is threatening our existence. And I think that's what's happening today. I completely agree. I would, I would almost just tweak it to be feminine rage because I think, you know, and I only say that because I have um, a lot of friends who are not male or female. Um, and, and, you know, and I do think it's, and I have a lot of male friends who are feminine about their rage in, in that they have embraced the masculine and feminine parts of themselves. That the, And what I mean by feminine rage is rage that is taken on behalf of caring for other people and mm-hmm. nurturing other people. Yes, of course. Not masculine rage, which is taken on behalf of proving that you are big and strong and manly and, and, and worthwhile. Um, feminine rage is taken in service of others. Um, that's, and... Yeah, and the and the planet, and it's you know it's why you know mama bear energy is is always uh, it's a it's a common phrase here, and people respect mama bear because mama bear will kill to protect her children and the planet. And I do think that there, I'm not saying let's kill people. That's terrible. No, but um, you know we should be fierce about our love and want to and desire to protect what is the most important thing in the world, which is each other and our planet. Um, and that is essentially, I think there's a false narrative about what climate change activism is, that it's some nature woo-woo thing and it doesn't care about people. It is 100% about people. For a lot of us, I know for a lot of people, it's about ecosystems and about nature and all that too. But for me, a, a vast majority, it's about it's about people. Um, it's about the people I love and, and people I don't know and people who don't have a voice. Mm. Um, and I think that it's a, it's a lovely thing. And I think that one thing that I would love to plug is that I've recently saw a movie, a screener for a movie that's, I think is coming out on Netflix on December 24th. It's called Don't Look Up. It's a climate change, almost satire movie about a, um, about a comet that's going to hit the earth and destroy it and, and how, you know, the political figures react. And Jennifer Lawrence plays 
just this angry. She can't believe everybody is not is not freaking out about this. And her anger is so beautiful and wonderful. And it's one of the most cathartic movies I've ever seen as a person that uh, works on climate change day in and day out. It was, I laughed, I cried. It was, and it was such a beautiful encapsulation of everything (laughs) that the climate fight is, but it's about a comet. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes we've got to have the stories told a little to the left, you know, so that we can get the message. Totally. Emily, I'm going to finish on one last question, and I think it's a good good note to lead into the final question. Um, what is left for you if we lose it all? I don't think there is losing it all. Climate change is a spectrum. Even if things get really bad, mm-hmm. they, first of all, they can always get worse. There is no end point. There is no, if we don't reach two degrees, if, if we don't get limit warming to two degrees, it's over. Um, There's always 2.1 degrees, 2.2 degrees. If you can, if we get to three degrees Celsius and that's going to be terrible, we can still prevent four. There is always something to fight for. There is never, it's a misconception to think that we can lose it all. Because unlike that movie, I would say this is the biggest this is the biggest uh, problem with the, with that movie I was just describing about the comet, is that there is no comet. It doesn't just hit and the world ends. When cl- climate change is already here, you know, um, we lose what we love gradually. And that almost makes it more insidious because we can adapt to things. We can adapt to seeing, to losing what we love when it's cut, when it happens slow. Mm-hmm. Um But what is always left for me is, I think what I said before, it is the people that I, that I love. And it's, it's the things that make life Mm. worth living. I think it's just really important to understand that we have everything we need here already. You know, we, we really have, we have it so good. Even in the worst parts of life, we have it all and it's worth protecting no matter how bad things get if you love one thing then it's worth it yeah yeah I think the other difference with that comet movie is the comet there's no solution all the solutions to the climate crisis exist they're out there they're accessible and so whatever that's the case the fight the fight matters yeah. Well, there was a solution and it was to fire nukes at the, uh, <laughs> to fire nukes at it. So I'll let you, I'll let you watch it. But yeah, it, but it is course. definitely a bit rudimentary, when I, for sure. All right. Well, listen, on that note, Emily, I'm just going to leave you with the message. Let's maintain the rage because there's a point to it. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to be engaged in. And thank you for maintaining it. And it's fun. It's fun. I totally agree. I it's totally fun. agree. Listen to punk music. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I know there's a lot to unpack from all of that. And Emily and I, well, we had to talk in and around a few technological issues and so there was a bit of stopping and starting, but frankly, we could have talked all day. And if you're interested, we will pick up on some of these themes in a later episode. So do feel free to contact me either in the comments on Instagram or via my newsletter and I'll put the link in the notes with any suggestions or areas around the climate crisis you'd like us to deep dive into. But meantime, some sound bites on this chat to reflect on. 
So I mentioned a George Monbiot quote, to be at peace in a troubled world is not a reasonable aim. It's something I think about often. And indeed, you know, the world is troubled. It is angry and rage is the appropriate emotion right now. As Emily says, the climate crisis is a corruption story. It didn't happen to us. It was done to us by the fossil fuel industry. So viewed through this lens, a particular type of rage is not just totally fair enough, it's motivating and mobilising. And I think it's required to bring about the fast change that must occur if we are to save this one wild and precious life together on this planet. Besides, the alternative, accepting or going softly or, you know, just pausing for a bit, spells our death knell. Or as Mary Hegler describes it, And I'll run the full quote here because I only touch on it on the chat with Emily. It goes, the thing about climate grief is that you can never get to the final stage of acceptance because that's the kiss of death. So you cycle in and out of all the phases. Me, I like to stay in anger. So I'm sure all of this will leave you with a lot to think about in a culture which feels like it actually has too much shouty rage going down and where female rage in particular is still deemed problematic or, you know, hysterical. But I'll leave that for you to have a think about with just an additional thought and a pointer. I mentioned the myth of Kali, the goddess of female rage. I really invite you to go look it up. She's spelled K-A-L-I or you can flick to page, I think it's around about 300, towards the back of this one wild and precious life. The other thought that I just had, the word courage can be broken down as rage of the heart or cur in French. We will need a lot of courage going forward and it will need to be fueled by a heartfelt rage. This is the last episode for season. We'll be taking a short break but supplying a bunch of bonus episodes in the interim. Until we launch with the next series, let's maintain the rage and stay wild. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 